The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. And I am your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you some insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome to the show Dr. Gabor Maté, who has written four books on, I would consider, some of the most challenging issues that we face in the world today. These books um, cover topics including attention deficit disorder in his book, Scattered Minds, the influence of stress in health and illness when the body says no, the disastrous loss of parental influence in today's culture, hold onto your kids, and now his latest book about addiction in the realm of hungry ghosts. Gabor certainly is a man with a mission to make a difference in this world and is much sought after for his uh, talks. So I'm delighted, Gabor, you're giving us uh, your time today. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Peter. So I'm really interested, first of all, in the title, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's a, it's a great title. Where, where does it come from? It's a Buddhist phrase. It comes from, in the Buddhist symbology, there's the great wheel of life, which cycles through six realms of samsaric existence, which is to say existence um, tinged with suffering, and um, really these are six states of mind that human beings can go through, in fact often do, uh, even in the course of a single day. So the, there's, a, there's the human realm, which is our ordinary selves, uh, as we experience ourselves day to day. The animal realm is the the realm of our instincts and our basic animal passions and our drives and then the hell realm is that of painful unbearable emotions rage terror and so on there there are other realms but the hungry ghost realm is one in which the inhabitants are depicted as creatures with large empty bellies small scrawny necks and small mouths so that their empty bellies can never be filled and that's the realm of unsatiable longing and yearning in other words it's the realm of addictions and again, these are realms that we all uh, experience in our lives and uh, maybe even in the course of a single day. But the people who are often stuck in the hungry ghost realm, the realm of addiction, of insatiable yearning, of trying to fill an emptiness from the outside, are there usually because they're trying to escape the hell realm of unbearable emotions. 
Okay. Well, thank you. It's it's a really striking striking title. Now, I think this is a, um, a close to a, a one of your quotes, which is, "No society can understand itself without looking at its shadow side." Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the place where I work in Vancouver is the so-called downtown east side, which is known, in fact, is notorious internationally as North America's most concentrated area of drug use. And people are forever trying to solve the problem of the downtown east side. These are streets uh, inhabited by drug addicts, people who shoot up in the back alleys, sometimes in the streets openly, people with uh, broken bodies and ravished faces, uh, street people, and so on. And there's a lot of hand-wringing and teeth-gnashing over how do we solve the problem of the downtown east side, as if the downtown east side existed separate from Canadian society. In other words, it's not that there's the downtown east side, then there is society. It's that the downtown east side is the shadow side of Canadian society, because the people that end up in the downtown east side are the people who've essentially been abused and failed by society. So that the addicted world, particularly that of the extreme addictions that I deal with, is really the shadow side of Canadian society, the, 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 the dark side that we don't want to look at. And how can you fully understand yourself without looking at, embracing, and owning your own shadow? So let's look at that then. Let's have a look at let's have a look at this shadow side of, of society and the and the shadow side of, of each of us. So just give us your uh, your knowledge and, and wisdom about what actually are the causes of addiction. Well, before I do, uh, you're right, you you so rightly put it the, the shadow side of each of us because until we get that we each have this dark side inside ourselves, uh, and unless we really own that. We simply are repelled by it when we see it in others. And really what we're repelled by is our own undealt with aspects. So that in order to understand what's going on with the other, we have to go on understand what's happening with ourselves. Now the causes of addiction, of course, uh, you have to look at it on many different levels. There's certainly a spiritual side there, uh, spiritual emptiness, a void. There's also um, the physical dependency, which is when most of some using drugs, it's hard to get off them. But what drives them in the first place, what, what creates the addict in the first place, really is pain, pain and emptiness. And the pain is either caused by things that shouldn't have happened or things that should have happened but didn't. What I mean by that is, is that things that shouldn't have happened is that children should not be abused. And yet virtually every person in the downtown east side of Vancouver that I look after as a medical physician was abused as a child, that all the women were raped as kids, uh, exploited sexually for years. Uh, many of the men were uh, certainly all neglected and abandoned, physically abused, or uh, experienced circumstances that no child ideally would have to even know about, let alone uh, endure. The other part of what should have happened but didn't is the warm, loving connection that each of us needs to develop properly, to develop as a confident human being, to develop a sense of spiritual connection with the world, uh, a sense of belonging, and a positive sense of ourselves. Sometimes it's not that bad things happen that shouldn't have, but very often the good things that should happen just don't happen because the parents are too stressed, too busy, too ill, too addicted, uh, too caught up in their own lives, uh, too um, beaten down by the economics of their lives, and so on. And so a lot of kids are not getting what should have, should be happening, which is that 
nurturing, attuned, loving connection, and that also is a source of addiction. So really, uh, whether it's the thing that shouldn't have happened, the abuse, or the thing that should have happened but didn't, that loving, nurturing connection, uh, at the source of all addictions is the longing and emptiness and the pain that arises from those experiences. I'd love to, to hear you uh, talk a little bit about the, the influence of genetics and the influence of, of, the, of the home environment, because there's obviously been a lot of discussion about that over the years, and people talk about a predisposition in the genetic material, and, and now there seems to be other evidence about the environment being more significant. So, so talk to us about your findings in that area. Sure. Well, I can certainly sum up the influence of genetic as among, among to zero. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no that's, an, that's an overstatement, of course. There, yes, are, yes. Certain, there are certain fe- features and traits about people that might predispose them to be more likely to engage in addictive behaviors. But even when there are predispositions, that's not the same as a predetermination. It just means that something's more likely to happen if the circumstances are, are, are right or wrong. In fact, studies both in animals, and including one in human beings just half a year ago, since my book came out, excuse me, showed that children, even children who have traits that might predispose them to addiction, those traits will not be activated if they're brought up in nurturing families. So you can actually dismiss the influence of genetics as effectively zero because even when the traits are there, they don't become uh, expressed or activated unless the circumstances are difficult. So the overwhelming importance, and, and, and whenever they talk about they've discovered this gene or that gene, the alcoholism gene, it turns out a few years later that they discovered nothing whatsoever. Uh, the genetic hypothesis is based on very faulty interpretation of adoption studies and twin studies and so on, which um, would take about the thinking powers of an intelligent five-year-old to see through, uh, in, in, in as shallow those are. But but they're highly uh, uh, espoused in the medical world um, simply because the other part of how the environment actually shapes the brain, and we know this now, it's not conjecture, it's simply brain science, that the human brain develops largely interaction with the environment, that stuff is not taught in the medical schools yet. Was, most physicians have got no idea how the human brain actually develops, because the material, even though it's been around for a couple of decades, and is not, not even controversial from the scientific point of view, simply isn't, hasn't percolated down to the level of the medical schools yet. But the reality is that the human brain does develop an interaction with the environment, and the essential brain circuits involved in addiction, the opiate circuitry, the circuitry of uh, pain relief, the circuitry of, of, of pleasure and reward, and the circuits of love and connection, and these are all the brain's own opiate circuits. As you know, we have alone our own opiates in our brains and our bodies. They're called endorphins, endogenous morphine-like substances. And children who don't have enough positive experiences grow up without enough endorphins in their brains. When they do opiates, they're hooked. It's that simple. And the same with other chemicals, important brain chemicals like dopamine, which is essential for incentive and motivation. Without dopamine, we don't do anything. When you rear mice without dopamine receptors in their brain, they will starve to death rather than budge an inch to eat something because they have no motivation whatsoever. Now, the dopamine circuits uh, also need to be um, developed in an appropriate, non-stressed environment. When that, those conditions are lacking, they don't develop properly. And then person, people want to do drugs that elevate dopamine levels like cocaine and crystal meth, nicotine and caffeine. So that I could go on and on about the brain biology, but all the essential circuits, and there are several others that are involved in uh, addiction, 
either develop or they don't based on the early environment. And when conditions are adverse, and the more adverse they are, the less likely they are to develop. So that in large-scale studies, for example, if a male child had six what they call adverse childhood experiences, meaning uh, physical or sexual abuse of the child, violence in the family, the death of a parent, a parent being jailed, a parent being addicted, a rancorous divorce, and so on. The more, you know, if, if, if a male child had six of these experiences, his risk of being an injection-dependent substance addict as an adult is 4,600% greater, 46-fold greater than that of a male child with no such experiences, nothing to do with genetics whatsoever. Gabor, we're coming up to our first break. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you for that uh, introduction to uh, the understanding of the brain development in early uh, age. And we'll continue the discussion after this first break. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tung left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm. The Awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. It's pretty scary, but I don't let it it's rattle me. It's pretty scary around here, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to I'm get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. The new home for visionary positive change. Seventh Wave Network. 
listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Hello and welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tung. And I have with me today Dr. Gabor Maté, who is an expert on addictions and has recently published a very powerful book in the realm of hungry ghosts. And before the break, Gabor, you were just describing to us the uh, physiology in the brain as it develops uh, from childhood. Uh, what, what are the critical ages for this development in children? The most critical period, the most crucial period, is the first three years. By the end of which time, the human brain is 80% adult size, and the body is only 19% adult size. So you can see the disproportionate energy that goes into brain development in the first three years. Now, that doesn't mean that all the circuits are developed, um, and they do uh, go on developing throughout childhood and adolescence, and thank God we can develop new circuits even as adults. But the crucial period is the first few years, and the earlier they are, the more crucial they are. So, you know, it's... Again, most importantly, the first three, but beyond then as well. And, and so uh, adults who go through a particular trauma then can become more susceptible to this situation? Well, the, the people who, as adults, go through traumatic experiences and develop, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder are, are all people who are predisposed to that because of childhood experiences. Oh, I in, other, okay. in other words, you can put 100 adults to the same traumatic experience and 20 of them will develop PTSD. Well, why those 20? When you look at their childhoods, it's because something has already happened to potentiate that. Something's already happened to their brains. So that uh, it's not random who develops uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as an adult. So that was actually my next question, was to, was to ask you um, the nature of the um, personalities of those people who are prone to developing addictions. So, well, uh, what you can say about them is that there's a general sense of dissatisfaction. Now, we all get dissatisfied sometimes with certain things, but the addict has a general sense of dissatisfaction. Doesn't, he doesn't know why. She doesn't know why, but it's just there. Uh, there's very often a restlessness of spirit there, which is based on that dissatisfaction. Uh, there is poor stress regulation. When the addict gets stressed, they don't know how to calm themselves very easily. They usually have to turn to something from the outside, and that's, of course, where addictions come in. Is that addictions are come along as soothers, basically. They are uh, they 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 come into play to soothe unbearable emotional states. Now, under the impact of the current economic crisis in North America, more people are eating junk food. Why? Because junk foods, sugars, and fats release endorphins in the brain, which are the brain's own opiate. So that the more stressed people are the more likely they are to engage in addictive behaviors when their own internal stress regulation mechanism is not very well developed. Addicts also don't have a clear sense of themselves as independent human beings. They're very much affected by uh, their relationships, and we all are, but the addict is extremely so. So that if you speak to addicts, you say, well, what caused your relapse? They'll often say, because my wife left me or my partner left me. In other words, they don't know how to hold on to themselves. They depend on external relationships to maintain some kind of equilibrium when those relationships are undermined or perhaps um, come to an end. Then the addict doesn't know how to deal with the anxiety. So there's, that's called differentiation. Differentiation is your capacity to be a separate um, 
self-sustaining human being. And finally, the addict, by and large, lacks impulse control, and that means the urge to do something becomes more powerful than your awareness that that something that you want to do is not so good for you. So impulse regulation is, again, not a moral question or an ethical issue. It has to do with the development of the brain. Certain parts of the brain are meant to regulate and inhibit the unhealthy or inappropriate impulses. The addict, if you look at brain scans of addicts, that part of the brain is most commonly dysfunctional. And I know that you, you've had your own addictive uh, things to deal with. So could you actually yeah. talk us through what what actually happens to a person who is in an addictive behavior mode, whether it be workaholic, any type of addictive behavior, what actually is happening? What, what causes the behavior? Well, um, again, depending on how stressed the person is, uh, there's a sense of emptiness and, and, and restlessness that has to be filled by something from the outside, whether it's work or, in my case, work, for sure, or shopping for classical music, which is addictive pattern of mine, it, it has to do with this urgency to, to get something right away to get out of this state of tension and anxiety. So it's all about changing, altering your mind state through the addictive behavior. It doesn't necessarily have to involve a substance. People who are sex addicts are actually trying to change their, mind, their mental states through the sexual activity because that releases these brain chemicals that make them feel soothed and uh, comfortable temporarily. And if that's the nature of any addiction, that the soothing is very temporary. So they have to have more and more all the time. Gamblers, the same thing. So whether you're a gambling, or a gambling addict or a, or a substance addict, uh, that urgency to use or to engage in the behavior is really all about extreme discomfort with the state of mind that you're in. And then you engage in the behavior, and, you, and, and temporarily you get that soothing and that high, you get the endorphins and the dopamine and the incentive and the pleasure and the pain relief and the rewards. But then, of course, uh, as a Buddhist teacher says, just one more is the binding factor in the cycle of suffering, which means that you think you just need one more hit, you need to buy one more thing, you need to do, uh, engage in one more bout of gambling, one more sexual conquest. But engaging in that actually creates more craving, more demand. So just one more is what keeps it driving. Wow, that's a, that's a wonderful explanation. And so, so do, do the addicts actually have any real choice? <clears throat> well, it's relative. Uh, we all have choice, you might say, in life, but our choices are relative, and they're relative to external circumstances, of course, and our own capacities, like the infant doesn't have a whole lot of choice, for example, very limited. Um, but also it's related to how conscious we are, how aware we are. Uh, most addicts are, are highly driven by unconscious forces, that go back to early programming. So while on the surface it may seem like they're making a choice, in another sense it's true, it's true to say that you're driven. You're driven. And look at that word driven. What does it mean when you're driven? It means that you're not in charge. Somebody else is in the driver's seat. And in this case what's in the driver's seat is these unconscious urges and, and, and the unconscious pain and the unresolved trauma and all that kind of stuff. So that when you look at the brain physiology of choice, in reality, there's not a whole lot there. And as Eckhart Tolle, the spiritual teacher, said, that without consciousness, there's no freedom. You can't talk about freedom until people are fully conscious. Which is, by the way, why Jesus says on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. People are not making free choices to do evil when they don't know what they're doing. When they truly don't know why they're doing what they're doing. 
So, in fact, a lot of people are moving around in the world just making decisions based upon their early childhood programming completely unconsciously. Oh, I'd say that characterizes most people most of the time. Yeah. And, and especially when it comes to important matters like relationships. People have no idea why they choose their partners, and they have no idea why they leave their partners. And it's all about uh, early programming that hasn't been resolved or brought to consciousness, and so that we, we, we're, trying to fix the, uh, we're trying to fix the present, but we don't realize that we're being motivated by the past. Excuse me one second. There's some hammering here I need to put an end to. Sure. Hey, hey, Mark. 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 Can you please stop the hammering for a while? I just, I'm doing an interview. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, interesting the hammering started because my next question was to ask you, uh, why is the war on drugs a failure? Well, first of all, think of the terminology. Any war is a failure, by the way, because already when you have to go to war, something has gone wrong, number one. Number two, uh, the war analogy uh, well, the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on cancer, the war on... Uh, what else did they make war on? The war on hunger. It's nonsense. You know, you don't make war on concepts. You don't make war on inanimate objects like drugs. You make war on human beings. And the, the war on drugs does nothing to address the conditions and the causes that give rise to the addictive patterns in people's lives. It simply punishes them once they become addicted. So really what we're seeing is, and we're seeing this in Canada right now, and we've seen the utter failure of the United States. You know, the United States has 25% of the world's population. Sorry, they have 5% of the world's population. They have 25% of the world's jail population, mostly because of their drug laws, so much so that in California, more money is spent on jails than on higher education. And the jails are so overcrowded, they're having to let people go now for strict economic reasons. They can't afford them anymore. And, of course, who are the people in jail because of the drugs? Not the big dealers and importers or the judges or the policemen who protect them or the politicians who are in cahoots with them, but the street-level pushers and users. In other words, the people that began life as abused children. So we're making war on the most abused segment of the, of the population. And, of course, disproportionately minority people in Canada, First Nations people in the States, black youth. So these are the people who begin life with the least advantages and the greatest burden of historical suffering. And then they get punished for it by being put into jails. So how are we in that way really going to undermine or, or in any way uh, deal with the sources of addiction, especially... When you look at the research, that shows that the biggest driver of addictive behaviors is actually stress. So are we really going to help people by stressing them? So when you impoverish them and you criminalize them and, uh, and, and you banish them to the social margins, and you make... Gabba, we're coming up to our second break, and yeah. I'm going to ask you after the break to, to talk about how we might do it differently to help these people. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network.
Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness, which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tung left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm, the awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Hello and welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tong. I'm delighted today to have with me Dr. Gabor Maté, who has uh, a real great understanding and insight into the world of addictions. Before the break, we were talking about uh, addictions and the sad state of the world today in terms of the attitude towards and what we do with people who are addicted. So, Gabor, I'd love to give you the chance now to talk about what we might do differently to create uh, healing opportunities in the treatment of severe drug addiction? Well, in my book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, I have a chapter entitled Imagining an Enlightened Policy Towards Addiction. And because I can only imagine it, and the reason I can only imagine it is because the current laws and the current social prejudices simply prevent any kind of a rational approach. There's absolutely no fixing the system that we have right now, as, as an Australian physician has said. You can't fix this system. You can't tinker with it around the edges. It, it's just simply a system that is unworkable because of the uh, 
punitive attitude towards people that really are addicted only because of the, the surfeit of pain in their lives. So any system that would uh, really hope to help heal people and to redeem them and transform their lives has to recognize where addiction begins, which is with the pain. And the response to pain is not punishment, but compassion. And so we need a compassionate system that takes people exactly where they are, not wishing they were any different, not wishing they were nicer or better looking or had cleaner habits, but exactly as they are. And, um, it, it, you know, from my perspective, as long as people are dependent on drugs, it's better for them to be provided those drugs so they don't have to buy them in back alleys and don't have to pay, don't have to prostitute themselves and steal and, and, and so on so that they can actually be cared for in decent facilities where once people are given any kind of compassionate care, they automatically start using less, which is just how it is. It's been shown many, many times. And then they need to be um, counseled to help to understand the source of the addiction, help to deal with the shame that they are carrying on the addiction, help to heal their wounds, physical and emotional, learn new skills, um, including how to be in relationship because they don't know how to be in relationship. Uh, with other human beings very often, at least not very deep and meaningful relationships. Of course, the spiritual work needs to be done that allows people to open to their higher consciousness, which we all have, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, and I'm not talking about intellectual or even faith-based belief. I'm talking about the actual experiential knowledge of it, which takes time for people, but they need a lot of support for it. And all these things take time. And if people say, well, where do we get the money for all this? The reality is that we're spending far more money now on programs and, and legal uh, sanctions that, that do more damage than good, so that if it's not a question of economics, it's a question of consciousness. You mentioned the significance of relationships a couple of times now. Could you just go into that into a bit more detail? Well, there's an American psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel at UCLA, who talks about interpersonal neurobiology which is to say that the biology of our brains and nervous systems is for a lifetime heavily affected by our personal relationships. And, of course, that's clear to anybody because look how, how you feel if anything goes wrong in your relationship. What happens to you physically, I mean, the whole body changes in a matter of seconds. Now, of course, for children and for infants particularly, that's absolutely inevitable because they're so dependent. But we're dependent throughout life. And the more immature we are at any age, the more dependent we are. So that uh, healing has to take place in a relationship because the, the, the hurting took place in relationships. It's very difficult for people to heal on their own. And so that the healing environment has to be one of nurturing and, and, and compassionate relationships. And it's often the case that, that, that with a, an addicted um, younger person, certainly that uh, parents and friends feel helpless uh, in, in, in trying to support the person involved. What, what's your advice for them? Well, I have a chapter in a book entitled uh, for, for, for uh, Friends and Caregivers, Family, Friends, and Caregivers. And um, it's very difficult to be around an addict. The addict, as I can tell you from my personal experience, both with myself and also with my clients, is an automatic liar because as soon as you engage in addictive behaviors, you feel ashamed, and you want to hide that shame. So people lie, they manipulate, they cheat. Um, they make promises. Uh, they're difficult to be around. Uh, 
they act out and so on. So anybody in relationship with a young person with addictions has a decision to make. Do I want this person in my life or don't I? Not the way I want them to be, but the way they are. If you can't handle them being in your life, then don't handle them being in your life. Then say, look, I love you very much, but I can't be with you. I can't handle it. But if you're going to argue with them, if you're going to make the choice to be with them, you have to accept them exactly the way they are. That's not to say that you like it. It's not to say that you don't hope to help them transform their relationship to addiction, but you simply can't force them. You can't keep badgering them. You can't keep admonishing them. Uh, you have to protect your own boundaries, look after yourself. Don't permit yourself to be exploited, but at the same time, you have to be completely accepting towards the addict and begin with the idea that if that's what they're doing right now, that's because that's what they need to be doing right now in terms of how they understand their lives. And if you want them to understand it differently, you have to simply begin by accepting them. So if you can't do that, I wouldn't blame you. But the worst thing is to be with somebody and to always be at them to be different than the way they are. That's soul-killing for both of you. So the acceptance for who they are in this moment is critical if you're going to stay engaged with them closely. Absolutely. It's absolutely critical. In fact, it's indispensable. At the same time, I'm, I'm sure it's the case that if, if uh, an addict can find a mentor that can indeed uh, be in full acceptance and, and with love in the heart, it can be very powerful transformation. In fact, if you talk to people who've... Uh whose lives have been characterized by a transformation, almost universally what made the difference was the presence of an empathetic witness, a compassionate caregiver of some kind. Who, because what happens is that given the early experience of the addict as, as, as somebody who was, say, hurt a lot, well, the, the problem with being abused as children is not simply the abuse itself. I mean, if that's all that happened, but if it stayed in the past, it would be sad, but it wouldn't matter that much. But what's really wrong with it is that the person who has negative experiences, who doesn't get that loving contact or gets worse, comes to the conclusion that they're completely unworthy as individuals. That's why these things happen to them, number one. And they come to the conclusion that the world is an empty place devoid of any help or compassion. When you accept them for who they are, you're doing two things. And you, and you, and you remain compassionate presence in their lives. You're doing two things. One is just sending the message, which will be received, Oh, maybe I'm not so unworthless after all. Because here's somebody who sees that I have worth. Number one. Number two, oh, maybe the world isn't all cold and hostile, where I have to reach for addictions is the only way of soothing myself. Those are powerful messages. You used an interesting word. You said empathetic witness. Why did you use the word witness? Because the witness doesn't change somebody's life. They don't intervene. They don't... Uh, step in there and they do, you know, and they cause anybody to do anything differently directly by force, but, but they're present to bear witness. And of course, so much of religious and spiritual work is about bearing witness. That's why it's so powerful. Absolutely. So you also mentioned spirituality a couple of times. So could you go into that a little bit, a little bit more and, and, and its role in supporting people who are addicted? Well, uh, <laughs> On the ferry over to where I am right now in Parksville, British Columbia, I was talking to a client of mine who's an addict. And he's telling me that he knows that there's God and he knows that he's got a power, higher power now. I said, no, you don't know that. He says, yes, I do. I, I feel it. I totally get it. I said, no, you don't. 
Now, of course, he's right and I'm right. And, 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 and what I, I understand what he means when he knows, but I'm also saying that in the moment of addiction, if you really knew, if you really, really knew, not intellectually or emotionally, but you really knew with your very fiber of your being that there's a God and there's a universe uh, with whom you're connected, you would never need to use anything addictive. Uh, if you knew that you're a child of God or this higher power is actually your greatest goal and value and support and, and, and ground of existence, why the heck would you need a substance? If you knew that everything, if you know, if you knew that you're loved and that you're deeply lovable, you wouldn't ever have used a substance. So, in the moment of addiction, I don't care what you know or think you know, you're complete um, religious recluse. Or, or I know I mean is that you're you're recluse from from spirituality at that moment. If you weren't, you wouldn't be using. And so that also means that the more people can um, embrace or seek that part of themselves which is really who they are, which, which is that connected, uh, engaged, and even worshipful part. And by worship, I don't mean any particular religion or even any idea, but simply the openness and the gratitude and the connection with the universe. The more you seek to open to that part of yourself and to receive that from others as well, the, lo- the less you would have any kind of need to soothe yourself through some totally trivial and unsatisfying way. So in some ways, we're back to the conscious-unconscious uh, connection again, aren't we, where if you were fully conscious and aware of your connection to spirit all the time, as you say, you, you, you couldn't be addicted. So it's back to that, those programs that are running below the surface again. But that's how I understand it, Peter. Now, I, I wouldn't want to sit here and claim that I've achieved that state. <laughs> my God, I haven't, you know. But, uh, but I've experienced it, you know. I mean, I've had experiences of it, and, 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 and I know what that's like. Uh, so it's, 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 it's expanding that moment from that one moment to all the time. That's right. And I think that takes practice and maybe more discipline than I've had so far in my life. <laughs> You're on the way, though, Gavin. No doubts about that. We're coming up to our, Thanks, our final break. Wife, and I'll tell my wife that you said that. Sorry, Gavin, say, say again? I'll tell, my, I'll tell my wife that you said that. <laughs> good, good. We're coming up to our final break, and uh, we'll return with Dr. Gabor Mate after... This few moments. This is Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond... Seventh Wave Network. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness, which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tong left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm. 
The Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Visit PeterTongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at PeterTongue.com. When you have a stroke, you may not even notice it right away. But then, time passes, and the symptoms get worse. One minute you feel fine, and the next, your speech could be slurred or not make sense. One side of your body might become numb. You might see double. You drop the TV remote because you can't hold up your arm. That's because, after a stroke, every minute you don't get help is another minute that your brain is being starved of oxygen. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face, arm, or leg, sudden trouble seeing, speaking, or understanding. If you experience any of these warning signs, call 911 immediately, because time lost is brain lost. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Take on that. Be extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Hello and welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tung. I have with me today Dr. Gabor Mate, who has written four outstanding books and and we could easily spend an hour uh, on each of the books uh, talking on this show which would be of great interest to people but Gabor I I have the sense that there's a a thread a connection running through all four books would that be the case it's absolutely the case Peter all the books I've written whether it's about attention deficit disorder which is condition with which I've been diagnosed myself or whether it's the addiction book whether it's the book when the body says no which is on the influence of emotional stress on physical health or any illness, or the book Hold On to Your Kids, which is about the importance of children remaining connected to adults rather than to other kids as they're growing up. Otherwise, the development is really um, undermined and, and, and um, diverted really from the proper path. All those books, what they have in common is the importance of human connection and relationship and what happens when we lose those relationships, when we lose the essence of those relationships, which is unconditional loving acceptance of the other, and when that happens to children, then dysfunction happens. And, and, and then that healing is possible, but again, through relationship with others, with yourself, and also with the spiritual self as well. And, Let's talk a little and, bit and, and, more, and, and more specifically, when it comes to addiction, ADHD, of course, ADD, attention disorder, is a major risk factor for addiction. A large number of people with addictions have undiagnosed ADD because, of course, when you look at how you treat ADD with stimulants, which elevate dopamine levels, which is also what the drugs do. So people are self-medicating ADD very often without knowing it. Uh, 
lady, the person lacks the impulse control, just like the addict does, and so very often the two are one and the same. The stress book, uh, when the body says no, the biggest driver, as I said, of addictive behavior is stress. So people that don't know how not to stress themselves are more prone to have addictive problems. And finally, of course, the loss of adult contact for many of our kids is a major risk factor for addiction as well. So all the four books are very much along, flow along similar channels, although they cover different subjects and different aspects of the loss of connection problem in our society. I'd love to hear you talk just a little bit more about stress and how significant that is in terms of our lives and, and, and causing us uh, challenges. Uh, just, just talk a bit about stress. Well, of course, the, the biggest stresses are, people, are stresses that people don't recognize. I mean, we can all recognize the stress of an economic crisis or an earthquake. Those are um, acute stresses, they're external ones, and we can see them. The, the stresses that people have great difficulty, difficulty defending against the ones that don't, don't see because they generate it themselves, and they generate it because of how they were programmed early in life. So people that are too dutiful, that are always trying to be nice, who don't know how to say no, who don't know how to get angry in a healthy way to protect their boundaries, who are afraid of disappointing others, they're always taking on too much, and they're stretching themselves, and they don't know it. And that describes the personality of anybody who develops any chronic illness, from ALS to, uh, to cancer to multiple sclerosis to arthritis and so on. That's the subject of my book, When the Body Says No. And in a society where people are not accepted for who they are, but we're all supposed to be somebody, look like somebody, uh, own something, achieve something, people are often trying to meet the expectations of others simply because they don't fully accept themselves. And that creates a lot of stress. And that creates a lot of illness. And Gabor, you, you yourself work in an incredibly challenging environment uh, on the downtown east side of Vancouver. So you must be under significant levels of stress yourself, and as you say, you have a tendency for addiction. So if you don't mind sharing with us, how do you, how do you manage and cope with your own life? Well, you see, you got to understand about stress. Uh, if I choose to work in an environment where I understand the limitations and the possibilities, the challenges and the rewards, but I'm conscious of them, I'm not so necessarily stressed by it. The stress doesn't come from the external. It comes from how you relate to it internally. So, you know, I have to tell you, like I've worked in palliative care, working with terminally ill people. People also, how can you work with people who are dying? Well, it's very rewarding because people need soothing and help and they need support and expert care at any stage of life, and especially when it's close to death. It's nothing inherently stressful about it. And the same with working with addicts. Uh, it's highly rewarding in many ways because you're helping people and you're getting to know people that are very interesting and very deep and very creative and very, you know, very good in many, many ways. And what would be stressful about it is if I had unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of myself, what would be stressful if I made myself into some kind of messiah whose role was to save everybody, then it would be very stressful. But I don't do that to myself. So, so, the, so you can be committed without being... Um, without being messianic, without taking on more than you can handle. And so I don't find the work as stressful as people might imagine, although it can be, but that depends on how well I'm taking care of myself. And that, Peter, is something that I do well sometimes and sometimes not so well. You know, so I, I, I understand that. I understand that really well from my own perspective, too, that 
as you say, we, we can do a really good job most of the time when we're consciously aware and then get caught occasionally. But I really appreciate your commitment to those people who are suffering in their lives in this world. So for those people who would like to get a copy of your book or, or check up on, on your work, just give us the, the websites and the information that people need to have. Well, my fundamental website is just my own, www.drgabormate, G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E, all small case, dot com, at which site people at the media and links page can also watch other interviews and, and videos and lectures that I've given and so on. But the books themselves are available both in Canada on Amazon.ca or in the States at Amazon.com. Uh, they've been published in the States as well and, and many other countries. And or most bookstores in Canada certainly carry my books, where they've been national bestsellers in the states. The stores will bring them in, and very often these days they carry them as well. But if not at the stores, then certainly through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of these online uh, sellers as well. Thank you, and, I, and I, I've read the books, and I highly recommend for people. Uh, suffering in, in any way with any of these situations we've talked about on the show today and parents in particular because one of the things uh, we, kn we now know is what happens in the first few years of children's lives is critical to uh, their potential for, for living a happy and productive life in the future. And I just want to close, Gabor, with, with one of your quotes, I believe, which is this, that no human being is ever beyond redemption. The possibility of renewal exists so long as life exists. May we all find peace. And mm. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Well, thank you. And it only expresses both um, a spiritual but also a scientific reality. That's just how it is. We all have potential. <laughs> we all have potential as long as we're alive. Well, Gabor, it's been an absolute pleasure doing this show with you. You've given us an incredible insight into the addictive uh, behaviors of people and, and where it comes from and what we can do in a heart-centered way to support people in their transformation. And, and as you say, it needs to be their own transformation that takes place. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Peter. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. So next week I, f I follow on this show with uh, Adam Dream Healer, also from Vancouver, who uh, came to fame with an incredible situation of healing a, a terminal pancreatic cancerous tumor from a well-known rock star, Ronnie Hawkins. And Adam will be talking about his methodology and his Intention Heals project next week on Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. This is your host, Peter Tung, wishing you a wonderful time. found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tong for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.